one thing I have found out about this congregation in the past month is that you really seem to enjoy the book of Esther. Um, one man who did not enjoy the book of Esther was Adolf Hitler. Uh, he hated the book of Esther. Uh, many Jews in Europe uh, during World War II, they cherished the book of Esther and they clung tightly to its message of hope uh, in the face of what was so tragically called his final solution. Uh, the Jews in the middle of the 20th century could read the story of Esther and Mordecai and uh, for those who had eyes of faith, the invisible hand of God that was ordering and directing the deliverance of the Jewish people in the book of Esther, despite the attempt of a brutal tyrant to annihilate them, they could read this story in the Bible and it held out hope for them that in the end, God would turn the tables and that he would bring joyful feasting out of their misery and suffering. Uh, maybe because it's so powerfully and pointedly depicted his own downfall, uh, Hitler banned the reading of the book of Esther and the Nazis actually would kill on spot any Jew who was found to be in possession of it. And yet many of the Jews were able, even in the prison camps, to produce copies of the book of Esther from memory. That's how precious and powerful it was to them. Now, we may hesitate today, and it would be understandable for us to hesitate, to compare our experiences of misery and affliction to that of the Jewish people in Nazi Germany. But we do know something of pain and groaning due to exile in our own lives, do we not? The experience of, of disorder, of displacement and chaos and confusion and grief, the, the sense that uh, home is, is far away, that heavenly abode that we, that we just sang of, that feast in the house of Zion, that recognition that the world as we experience it is not as it ought to be. And so the book of Esther is of enduring relevance for us as well as it has been for the Jewish people for many centuries. The, the message of Esther is that though God may seem absent, right, we've drawn attention each week to that fact that the book of Esther is unique in the Bible. It's the only book of the Bible where God's name is not actually mentioned. So though he may seem to be absent, God is ever present in the midst of his people's trials. Amen. That is what we learn from the book of Esther. Uh, as the Bible commentator uh, Matthew Henry put it, though the name of God be not in it, the finger of God is, directing many minute events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. That's what we've uh, been seeing. I hope that's what you've been seeing over the past three Sundays as we've considered the book of Esther together in the midst of much uh, chaos and confusion. I believe he's in the basement. Don't know what that's about. Let's just pray for a second because it's probably about something. Heavenly Father, uh, don't know if someone is ill or... Um, what may be transpiring, but we pray that you would um, bring stability and strength and wisdom and clarity for whatever crisis may have arisen and help us to trust you, even as we're being reminded of you and your imperceptible activity in our world. Strengthen us, comfort us, help us to focus and learn from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in the midst of chaos and confusion, I believe is what I was saying, pain and groaning, uh, God has been at work in the book of Esther to bring about the deliverance of his people. And not only the deliverance of his own people, but as we've considered it, in the preservation of the Jewish people at this time, God was preserving the lineage of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. So without the deliverance that was brought about in the 
Persian Empire in the early 5th century BC, we would not have this great salvation we've been celebrating today. The Lord's fingerprints, though his name is not mentioned, his fingerprints have been ordering all the events in the book of Esther so that this Jewish woman named Esther would be brought into place as the queen of Persia for such a time as this. Last week, if you were here, we saw how God used something as mundane as a sleepless night of the king and Esther's courage in going before the king to expose the plot of this evil man, Haman, who had conspired against the Jewish people. And we saw how that Haman, I, saw, I just heard a boo, that's fine, we, you can boo, um, how that plot had been turned on Haman's own head, and so that the very gallows which he had prepared for Mordecai, the Jew, he ended up being hung upon himself. It, it was a dramatic reversal. That's the word that we used uh, last week where the, those who exalt themselves were humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so the book of Esther is just a wonderful story. If you're new among us, if you've not been here the last few weeks, I would encourage you to just pick it up and read it sometime this week. You could read the whole book in probably 30 or 45 minutes. Uh, it's a wonderful read. But as satisfying as it was to see that reversal that we considered last week, uh, as we saw Haman go from scheming to destroy to himself being destroyed, there was still some unresolved tension in this story. Uh, as of the end of chapter 7, Haman is dead. And yet, his wicked decree authorizing the, the destruction of the Jewish people, that decree lives on. And as we had been told earlier in the book of Esther, the laws of the Persians and Medes cannot be revoked. So this decree that had been stamped with the king's very signet ring, it was still in effect, even though Haman himself was no longer now a threat to the Jewish people. That's where we pick up the story this morning in Esther chapter 8. And as we conclude this, this wonderful story of God's deliverance of his people, I want to draw your attention to three themes that are prominent in these closing chapters. They all begin with the letter R because it's important to alliterate sometimes. Uh, I want us to consider from the text the themes of reversal. I know we talked about it last week, but it's, just, it's here. Reversal, retribution, and remembrance. And it is my prayer for us today and throughout really this study of the book of Esther that we would be helped from this time together from the book of Esther, that we would be helped in the midst of our own trials. When tears are great and when comforts are few, we would be strengthened to live upon the God who is invisible and yet active for his glory and for our good. Dan, is everything okay? Yes. Let me pray once more as we come to the word. Father, we thank you that everything is okay, uh, and we do pray that as we would come to the scriptures, as we would read them together, as we would consider them, we pray that you would help us. We need your help. We're so desperate for your help. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is just is no help at all, and yet we thank you that the words that you speak to us, they are spirit and they are life, and so we pray that you would revive the spirits of your people, that you would give fresh life to us, and even that you would awaken life in some among us, perhaps who are spiritually dead this morning, that you would give life through the power of the gospel of your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's look at, at Esther chapter 8, and we'll see this theme of reversal becoming even more crystallized than it was when we considered it last week. Esther chapter 8. On that day, now again, just the, the requisite, I'm using the, he, the king's Hebrew name, King Ahashverosh. It sounds a little quirky. But remember, kids, what that means, that, 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 those two Hebrew words, yes? Headache, right? So it's King Headache. And so I'm using his Hebrew name. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king 
for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy uh, of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all the peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shusha the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shusha shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor, and in every province and in every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now, we, we can't dwell at length on all of these, but there are a series of reversals that we find in this particular chapter. We see at the beginning of it a reversal of power where Mordecai, is given the signet ring, which had previously belonged to his enemy, Haman. That, the signet ring being a stamp of, of his royal authority. So we see this reversal of power. We, we see a reversal of property as the, the, the land of this uh, traitor, Haman. It was the custom in that day that someone who was found to be a traitor, his property would be removed and it would be given to the king. And so Haman was now convicted and was killed as a traitor to the king. And so his property was transferred to Esther, who then set Mordecai over Haman's house, a reversal of property. Uh, we see, especially in this chapter, a reversal of decree, right? Esther pleads with the king to do something about this evil edict that is still in place. And the king, acknowledging, right, the immutability of Persian law, right? You can't revoke the laws of the Persians and the Medes. But he does authorize Esther and Mordecai to enact a counter decree, uh, in effect, basically allowing, authorizing the Jews to defend themselves from the attacks that had been decreed for the 13th day of the month of Adar. That was the, if you remember back in chapter 3, when Haman cast those lots on when would this day 
of genocide come. It was the 13th day of Adar. Well, now the counter decree says the Jews can mount defense. They can attack those who are their enemies who attack them on that very day. Some of those details, especially perhaps you noticed it as I read the reference to the the women and the children there in chapter 8, verse 11, it may disturb us. Uh, But really, the, the wording of this edict is precisely the opposite, and I think it was intended to be so. It was precisely the opposite of Haman's decree, showing the reversal of what Haman had intended for evil. So, so there's a bunch of reversals. There is may, maybe most notably uh, the reversal of mood, right? We see it in Mordecai's clothing. Mordecai, when the initial decree of Haman had been published, we saw Mordecai dressed in ashes and sackcloth. They were garments of mourning, but now, uh, uh, now he's wearing royal apparel, right? You see that in chapter 8, 15. He, he, he looks in splendor like a king. Whereas uh, when the initial decree of Haman went out, we're told that in the city there was confusion, chapter 3, verse 15. Now there's a shout of rejoicing in the city. Whereas the Jews had experienced mourning with fasting and weeping and lamenting upon hearing of the initial decree, now we're told that the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor and a feast and a holiday. And we even see here a reversal of allegiance. Did you notice that in chapter 8, verse 17? Many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Hard to know for sure. I'm not sure that we can know if this was genuine conversion or if this was uh, sort of reading the news and just saying, I think we're going to be better off if we side with the Jews on this one. I'm not sure exactly how to, to read it, but it's still a dramatic reversal, is it not? Just a few weeks earlier, all the Jews were mourning as their destruction had been decreed, and now many non-Jews are desiring to identify with the Jews because the fear of the Jews, perhaps the fear of their God as well, had fallen upon them. We see a series of reversals here, and, and all of this is the Lord's doing, though his name is not mentioned. This is God's doing. This is not just a string of coincidences, but this is the work of providence. God is the one who has brought about this reversal and lifted the countenances of his people. I think we do have a little clue. That's what we've been looking at in our previous weeks is we just see these little clues of God's fingerprints in the story. And I think we have another little bit of a a fingerprint there in chapter 9, verse 22. I know I haven't read that yet, but if you want to peek ahead... I don't think this is a spoiler because if you've read this far in the book of Esther, you know how this is going to go when these dueling decrees, you know, come to a head on the 13th month of Adar. But in chapter 9, verse 22, look at what it says there. They they spoke of those days in which the battle did take place as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday. The Jews had gotten relief. They did not win relief. They did not earn relief. They got relief. They received relief. They did not turn their sorrow into gladness. It had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness. And who might that have been? Who did that? Well, it was God who did it. It would have been right and appropriate for the Jews to rejoice in those words of Psalm chapter 30. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Psalm 126 is a psalm I wonder if many of the Jews may have brought it to mind in this season of celebrating. I think it actually is undergirding the song that we were just singing about feasting in the house of Zion. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, like throughout the 127 provinces in the Persian empire, They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad 
God had brought about a dramatic reversal for his people. And that is a great consolation to his people, is it not? Even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, whether that's figurative for us or whether that's literal for us. When, when your present lot is one of sowing in tears, beloved, and it will be that at some point. For some of us, it's now, and others of us, maybe another time. But when our lot is one of sorrow and tears, you can be confident that the divine architect has not yet completed his work. Uh, Thomas Watson, in a, a little book in the 17th century, a little book called All Things for Good, uh, it's just an exposition of that wonderful truth in Romans 8.28, that God works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. One of the implications, he says, of that truth, of believing that truth, is that we should learn how little cause we have to be discontented at outward trials and emergencies. And he illustrates it like this. He says, if one friend should throw a bag of money at another, and in throwing it, it should graze his head, he would not be troubled much, seeing by this means he'd gotten a bag of money. So the Lord may bruise by afflictions, but it is to enrich us. These, afflic these afflictions work for us a weight of glory. That may be a hard word to hear, and you might not see the fruit of it now, but the book of Esther reminds us that is what God does. God brings seasons of feasting even out of our seasons of fasting. And part of that glory that we have to look forward to, it's, it's sobering, but it's here in the text and it's in need of our attention. Part of that glory is the retribution that he will bring upon our enemies. So let's, let's keep moving on in the text, Esther chapter 9. I'm going to read through verse uh, 19 here. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. See, I did not make up that word out of thin air. The reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house. And his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Shusha, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed, here we go. Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aradatha and Parmashta and Arasai and Aradai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Shusha the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, in Shusha the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Shusha be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the, the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Shusha, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Shusha gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Shusha, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shusha gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. I wonder how that sits with you. That's a lot of bloodshed. 75,000 people throughout the Persian Empire in the surrounding areas, another 800 in the capital city. I think it just shows something of the scope and the extent of the, the hatred against the Jews, or at least the greed of those who wanted to take advantage of this edict for their own profit. And the Jews mark this great massacre with feasting and gladness. Hey, let's, let's have some more food. What are we supposed to do with that? I think there's a few things that we need to consider. First, we should remember that the, the desire that we have for justice, that innate desire that we have in us, you remember, if you were here last week, the story I told about that reckless driver and how that so seemed to rejoice your spirits. That desire we have for justice is a reflection of the righteous God in whose image we are made. If God is good, then he must be just, and he must therefore be fiercely opposed to all that is evil in the world. A God who is unconcerned about the moral evils of this world, such as the Holocaust, or the looming invasion of the Ukraine, or the atrocities committed by the Taliban in Afghanistan. A God who is unconcerned about these things would not be a God worthy of our worship. And yet we know and we understand from scripture that personal vengeance is wrong. It is forbidden by God. So the Apostle Paul says in Romans 12, verse 19, very pointedly, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We must understand that our desire for justice, which is a part of our being made in God's image, never authorizes us to seek personal revenge against anyone. But what we have here in Esther chapter nine is not a war being fought out of personal vengeance, nor is it a war being fought for personal reward. Those who were killed were enemies who had determined to destroy the people of God. We read that in a number of ways, in a number of places. I won't recount all the verses to you. At least I'm not going to read them all to you. But you could look again at chapter 8, verse 11, or chapter 9, verse 1, and 2, and 5, and 16, that it's clear that this warfare was one of self-defense. If, if Haman's decree had prevailed, then the Jewish people would have been destroyed and killed and annihilated and the promise of a coming Messiah from them would have been destroyed with them, right? This edict of Haman was not just an assault on the Jewish people, but it was an assault on God's very promise of salvation that would come through the Jews, right? What was the promise made to Abraham in the beginning in Genesis chapter 12? He said that he would gather from Abraham a nation, a family, and that through this family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And we know from the book of Galatians that that blessing, that fulfillment is found in Christ, who is the offspring of Abraham. And so to destroy the Jewish people at this time would have been to destroy the very hope of a Messiah. And so we do see in the Old Testament, not just here, but we see it at other times, especially vividly in the book of Joshua, right? In the conquest of the land of Canaan, we see holy wars being fought from time to time. Holy wars in the Old Testament are God's battles against sin and evil on earth 
so that his people would be preserved and so that his Messiah could come in the course of time, in the fullness of time, and put an end to evil once and for all. The fact that this was God's war is indicated here in the passage. Did you notice three times, I tried to draw a little bit of attention to it as I read, that they did not set their hands on the plunder. Did you notice that? That is a reference to the way God instructed and commanded the Israelites, even in the book of Joshua, when he told them very clearly, this is God's battle. You are, these are God's enemies. You are not to, to prosper. You're not to get rich from their judgment. So you don't touch the plunder. And that's what we see taking place here in uh, the book of Esther. This was not a a fight being fought out of personal vengeance. This was the people of Israel being used as instruments to bring about divine judgment on God's enemies. We must remember, Christians, today in the 21st century, we must remember that these holy wars in the Old Testament are not to be repeated. God does not want us uh, going out around today trying to find the enemies of God and killing them. That is not how we spread our mission. Perhaps that sounds obvious to you, but you understand, especially in this post-9-11 world, it needs to be said. Many, much of the evil being perpetrated in the world and the attacks on human liberty and against human dignity and justice. They are being waged in the name of holy war. That's not how we fight. God told, Jesus said specifically in Matthew 26, 52, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's not because there was a big change that happened in God's heart in the Old Testament and the New Testament. As if there was one kind of angry God in the Old Testament commanded holy war, gentle, loving God in the New Testament says, love your enemies. No, that's not why. The point is that these executions in the Old Testament, these holy wars in the Old Testament were the means by which the Messiah's coming would be preserved and God's promise to bless the nations would be fulfilled. So just, just picture a hypothetical conversation that may have happened in the city of Shusha in the days following this second edict, this counter edict of Mordecai. You could imagine maybe a non-Jew coming up to a Jew and saying, hey, what, what is, like, what's up with the Jews exactly? Like, this is crazy, the turn of events that's happening. Like, we were just told to get ready to kill all the Jews, and now Haman is dead, and Mordecai's got the signet ring, and the Jews are celebrating, and they're, they're preparing to do away with their enemies. Like, what? What's go like? What's a Jew? What is this all about? That there could have been conversations like that. We have no record of a conversation like that, but I'm saying there could have been conversations like that. What an evangelistic evangelistic opportunity that might have been for a Jew. Let me tell you. Let me tell you about the the Creator of the heavens and the earth, who made a world good and who made all people to know Him, and to enjoy Him and to live in relationship with Him and to reflect His image. That's the way God made the world. And yet humans, we, we sinned against him. We rebelled against his rule and authority. That's, that's called sin. And the punishment for sin is death. And, and humans were banished from God's presence because of our rebellion. But God made a promise to undo all the damage of sin. And he began to do so by gathering a nation to himself from a man, one man named Abraham. In fact, this Abraham, he was actually an idolater like you, but God set him apart and made him a covenant promise that from him, that through his line, a Messiah would come, an anointed rescuer and king would come, and that from him, blessing would flow to all the nations, and that could come to you today if you would align yourself with God and, and with his people, if you would turn from your idolatry and give yourself to him. I don't know if stories like that happen. But that's what God was doing. And that's what we do today. We don't take up holy war. We don't fight battles trying to kill people who will not submit to our God. We hold out this good news and we fill in the details that this Messiah is the Lord Jesus. That Jesus came and on the cross, he 
took the penalty for sin for all those hell-deserving sinners who would repent and believe in him. And we hold out, we spread out far and wide to all the nations of the earth. We spread this good news of salvation from shore to shore, even as we wait for that day when Christ will return and destroy his enemies once and for all. When we see heaven open and a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true, with justice, he said, gentle and lowly Jesus who invites all sinners to come to him. We're shown Jesus in the book of Revelation. If we had, if we had read a little farther from where Steve left off in Revelation 19, we would have read about how this king would come on a horse to judge and to wage war, him whose name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he will punish all his enemies. And it will be an occasion of gladness for the people of God, just as it was an occasion of gladness for the Jews in Israel's day. That's what Steve did read for us. Hallelujah, the people of God will, will proclaim. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitutes who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. On that day, and only on that day, will it finally be revealed what is the right side of history. And so, what, what are we supposed to do with, with these pictures of massacre and vengeance and judgment? Well, I think, I mean, first and foremost, it should compel us to consider our state carefully. I don't mean the state of New Jersey. I mean the state of your soul. Many people, and, and I was burdened, perhaps there may just be a number of you among us even here today, rushing through life, feeling healthy, and prosperous, and yet one day they will wake up and find that they have thoughtlessly tumbled into the presence of God and that his righteous and complete and unerring and irrevocable judgment awaits them. And so what, do, what are we supposed to do with these pictures? We're supposed to have a little picture of what every one of us deserves because of our sin. There are no righteous people we may feel a little bit scandalized that some people receive God's wrath like we see exhibited in a passage like this, but really the scandal is that any of us would be offered mercy. That's the scandal of the gospel. We all are unrighteous before God. And so one way that we make application of this text, and particularly for those of you who are here who have not put your faith in Christ, for all of you, no matter what your age is, kids, I, I want you to think about this today. I know I talk up here for a long time, but here be, the, here be a minute or two where if you want to just lock in here for a minute or two, if you're hearing me, if you can understand the words coming out of my mouth, kids, then you can think about this as well today, that you are sinners. Your parents are sinners too. Even the person talking to you right now, I, I'm a sinner too, but you are sinners. And sin brings God's punishment because God is good. And so we all should think, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, we should be thinking about that day when we will stand before God to give an account for our lives. And you can know, kids, that God is full of love. He's not an angry, harsh God. He's a loving God. He's so full of love that he was willing to send his own son to die on the cross and be punished with the punishment that we deserved so that we could be forgiven and so that we can be brought near to him. That's really good news, kids. That's really good news, adults. Isn't that amazing? God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Should that not fill us with wonder? When I think that God, his son, not sparing, 
sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Is the more you contemplate the wrath of God and the more you look into your own soul, the more wonder and awe there ought to be. If you've not put your faith in Christ today, please do today. Today is a day of salvation. Come to Jesus. For the vast majority of you who have, we're supposed to remember. What are we supposed to do with these pictures? We're supposed to remember. That's the last theme that we want to consider briefly this morning. Reversal, retribution, finally, remembrance. Let's finish out the text, Esther 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king... He gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of, that, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year and that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan province and city and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants then Queen Esther the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerosh in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerosh imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerosh, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Well, our time is running out. But we see here a call to remember, don't we? It's a call to remember. We see it followed by the Jews' agreement. They, will, they oblige themselves to celebrate obligated feasting. And we see that obligation cemented then in, an, in a decree of Esther sort of stamping that the Jews will, from this day forward, celebrate this feast. I have no idea. Someone's going to ask me after the service. I have no idea why this happy ending mentions King Ahasuerosh and his imposing a new tax on the citizens. Did that just strike you as a very peculiar thing to include there? I have no idea why. I have heard it suggested, and I kind of like the suggestion, so I'll just offer it to you, that maybe it's just a little smudge that's put into this very happy ending to remind us that as much celebration as Purim was, as much joy and gladness as the Lord had brought about, it wasn't the final reversal that we all longed for. There was still more of this story to unfold. And that little picture of Mordecai there in the last verse is a little, that's a little pointer to our Lord Jesus. You could do a Jesus thing with that last verse, but again, our time is tight.
They called the celebration, they called this feast of remembrance Purim. It's a strange celebration, a strange name, right? This word poor, before it's mentioned there, it was only used in chapter 3, verse 7, when Haman uses the the lots, he he cast dice, basically, to set the date for the Jews' destruction. Why would they name a festival after the instrument employed by their enemy to determine the date of their slaughter? That's a strange thing. And again, I'm not sure, but I, I wonder if they called it Purim because they knew the wisdom of King Solomon who said that the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. See, the the festival of Purim, not the festival of Esther, which you might think was an appropriate name, or the festival of Mordecai, he's the one who's celebrated there at the end of the book, but the festival of Purim is called Purim because it is a regular celebration that the lot the destiny, the portion of God's people is not left up to chance. It's not determined by someone like Haman casting lots before his gods. No, it is the Lord who determines the lot of his people. And the name Purim reminds God's people both then and now that it is God and it is God alone, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who rules over all and who determines how things turn out in our world. It is God who determines the destinies of all people and all nations because our God reigns and because our God has has brought deliverance to his sworn enemies through the reconciliation found in Christ We now can say, adopted into God's family, we can say with the psalmist, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And he wants us, beloved, to remember it. Do we have to, should we celebrate Purim? I mean, it says there, a, it's a binding commitment for all God's people to celebrate Purim. It wouldn't be a bad thing to do, I don't think. March 16th is coming, people, so, you know, whatever you want to do, but it's not a bad thing to celebrate, is it? That when everything is looking hopeless, here's the lesson of Purim, when everything is looking hopeless, God brings about a great reversal through his gracious yet subtle providence in the world. Purim is a celebration that when evil looks like it is winning, God is the one who will have the final victory. That when Hamans lay their wicked plans, in the end, God will turn those wicked plans back on their own heads. That's something worth celebrating, I think. And yet, we don't need to celebrate Purim because Purim was just a foreshadowing of another feast. Right, the, the celebration to end all celebrations, the feast to end all feasts, the banquet to uh, end all banquets when the deliverance will be eternal and the rest from our enemies will be indestructible. It is that day that Steve read to us earlier from Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the celebration that we have. That's the one we want to remember, beloved. That day when the trumpet of the archangel sounds and Christ splits the skies and he comes in the glory of his splendor and every eye will see him. And we who believe will be changed and the dead will rise and heaven will be rolled up like a scroll and the elements will melt as in a fire and books will be opened and all the enemies of Christ and his church will be destroyed and a new heavens and a new earth will open to us, the home of righteousness where we shall be forever with the Lord face to face as the lamb wipes away every tear from our eyes. He wants us to remember that. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, we will feast and weep no more. The Jews had an annual feast, an annual remembrance. Beloved, we we can remember it every day. We should remember it every day, but we have a special celebration and feast every Lord's Day. We get a weekly feast, do we not? 
when Christians all around the world today, this happening today, a tsunami of remembrance from the seismic earthquake of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And that tsunami is still echoing and reverberating out in celebrations like this one every single Lord's Day among millions of people reminding us that Jesus is risen and that God has defeated death and he has called us into life. That's why we come together, because we need to remember. He's brought us from death to life, beloved. So we can say now with more clarity and confidence than the psalmist could have known, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Even if that night, beloved, lasts 70 years, even if the sorrow seems to be unrelenting, it will seem like one bad dream in the eternal morning of the new heavens and the new earth. And on that final day, when our king comes in glory to make all things new, when our lot is all light and gladness and joy and honor and a feast and a holiday, we'll be able to look back and we'll take it all in and we'll find that even in some of the most unexpected places, our deepest heartaches and our sufferings and our victimizations and our moments of crisis and even those seemingly mundane details of life, we'll be able to look back on the full panorama of it all and we will be able to say with the psalmist, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Remember that, beloved. Remember that. It is sure and it is certain because of Christ. He will come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's not a pipe dream. That's our future because Christ is risen from the grave. Love you, brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to remember. Help us to rejoice. Help us to spread these glad tidings of salvation from shore to shore. Help us to remain steadfast and immovable and always abounding in your work, knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Grant us a fresh apprehension today of the glory of Christ's coming and of what you will bring us into on that final day. We ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.